0: I'm Jess, and I'm Betsy, and we are VN Today we've got Shirley Gibbons with us. Hi Shirley. Hello. Do you want to introduce yourself and just tell us a little bit about your education and how you got here?
1: Yeah, I'm Shirley, as I was nicely introduced. Um, I am an RVN. I took the degree route uh, from Hartbury College, qualified as an RVN in 2014, having completed the foundation degree, and then I topped up to a full degree, having completed that in 2015. Um, I then, um, I spent my BSc year locoming, which I loved, um, f- around a few different practices in the Bristol area, which was um, excellent for my kind of confidence, I suppose, as a nurse. And then relocated to the Bedfordshire area, worked in their general practice for a couple of months before going back to a referral practice. Um And then decided that it was time that I delved into my passion and got a job in the education sector. Amazing. So what is your current role? Currently, I am the lead internal quality assurer for the College of Animal Welfare. And did you have to do any sort of further qualifications?
0: in order to get into that role?
1: No, I think that's actually something that holds people back from getting into the education sector. They might have a real passion, and ultimately that's all they need. Mm -hmm. There are not many providers out there that aren't going to take a chance on you, particularly if we're talking about the further education diploma route colleges. Yes, if you're looking at a degree programme or teaching or working on a degree programme, you are likely to need a BSc in veterinary nursing to start with, and you are likely to need some form of postgraduate qualification, such as your postgraduate certificate in education. However, in order for you to gain relevant teaching experience, to move out of practice and take that first step, think about the college route initially, which is what I did, and I literally just searched at all the colleges that were local enough for me to drive to on a daily basis, and I was lucky enough that the College Animal Welfare were advertising at that moment in time I'd I'd been a clinical coach in practice I'd always known even from day one of being qualified that I wanted to be a coach I wanted to teach I wanted to train so I saw a job advertised as um at the time it was called a clinical tutor but it's what we now call internal quality assurers used to be known back in back in the day as an internal verifier um decided I would apply for it, and worst case scenario, I would find out what qualifications I would need. Went for the interview, found out that all of the qualifications I would need for the role, I would be trained for whilst I was doing the role, and I was lucky enough to be offered the job, and I haven't looked back.
2: So in terms of your further qualifications, have you gone into anything while starting this job role? Have you felt that you needed to... Gain any further qualifications to do your role, or did you feel equipped going into it?
1: Yeah, um, there's kind of two sides to that. On the one hand, yes, I did feel equipped because I'd been a clinical coach. I knew how to support students. Um, Not all students, obviously, they're all different. No two are ever going to be the same. But from a you know generic sense of knowing on a basic level what a student needs from their coach, yes, I felt like I was able to offer that support to students and coaches. from a professional perspective, I did have requirements um, to achieve within my role. Um, so my first requirement was completing my level three award in education and training. Um, I then went on to my kind of quality assurance qualifications. So it's now um, the TACWA qualifications, so the assessor and the IQA. Again, those people that previously were did the A1 or V1 qualifications, it's the same thing, just the updated version of it
0: did you feel that being relatively new to the profession obviously you are more than qualified um did you feel that having the experience of going through the mpl in the previous sort of few years helped you in terms of
1: like relating to oh yeah again another good coaching? question it's another yes or no i'm afraid on the one hand definitely yes because i had an understanding of what the MPL even was, what did it stand for, how did you log on a skill, how did you write the correct case reference, what did the reflective comment require of you, I knew that side of things but actually when I started at the College of Animal Welfare the new version of the MPL, which was released September 2016 was only two months into its new life so actually as a college when I started we were still in the process of updating all of our guidance and our ability to train students and help students through that specific training process. So understanding the process of the MPL definitely helped, but I still had to pick up a lot of the guidance and the criteria requirements in order to then be able to effectively support the students. So from the perspective, let's say, of a nurse that might have completed the portfolio training... If they're thinking this is something I want to get into, but I can't because the NPL is currently in use, it really doesn't matter. There are IQAs that currently work for the College of Animal Welfare who did the portfolio and it certainly doesn't hold them back.
0: I guess it's just about applying your knowledge and being able to adapt to every situation. As you say, no students the same either. So I guess and no practices sort of the same in terms of caseload and Mm -hmm. SOPs and things I guess it's just about adapting
1: I think ultimately and this is something I'm genuinely passionate about if you have that passion and you want to support students and you want to improve the quality of veterinary nurses that are going to be the veterinary nurses for our future profession then get involved because the industry needs people like that the teaching profession needs people like that it doesn't matter how you qualified, what experience you have. If you've got that passion and drive, you're the right person regardless.
2: And you mentioned about possibly the thought that further education is required to get into this kind of role, and that might hold people back. Mm. Do you think there's anything else that holds people back, uh, other nurses, from from stepping into a role like this, where they feel that it's something that they want to do? but?
1: Yeah, I think... <laughs> Unfortunately, I think actually a lack of awareness is perhaps a big issue. Um I think back to my time as a student and looking at my lecturers and thinking I want to do that job one day and through the degree program that I completed, we didn't have IQAs, the lecturers did the complete role. Um but now knowing what I know, I realize that although I love to teach, I also love visiting the students in the practices and and supporting them and following them through on their learner journey which the lecturers do have some involvement with but in a very different sense to what an IQA does but if you don't know that an IQA job is even available or what it even means that's unlikely to be something that people are going to apply for if they're thinking I want to be a lecturer.
2: Right so that IQA role what what would a typical day be for you? Could you describe that for our listeners? <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> or typical, or, a, or a typical I, week,
1: you know? I had to do something similar for this during a recruitment drive um, about a year ago. And sitting and typing a day in the life of an IQA took me a while, I'll, I'll be honest. <laughs> um, because it's it's so varied. And actually, that's one of the things that I've always loved the most about doing the job Um because really no two days are the same and people say that about veterinary nursing in practice which is true but also you have your routines and you come in and you put the kettle on and you you know you make your first round of tea and then you go sort talk to your inpatients or whatever um but with an IQA role There are kind of peaks and troughs of what it is that you're expected to do. So, at certain times of the year, you might be almost exclusively visiting the different practices, visiting the degree students or the diploma students, depending on your requirements, checking on the training practices, making sure that they're still all okay. Other times of the year, you might be exclusively based at one of the centres or home based, depending on what your kind of agreement is, and auditing the MPLs and moderating those and making sure that they're okay um so I'd say one thing that happens all day every day regardless of where you are or what you're doing is answering emails and I don't say that begrudgingly because I think it's really important that
2: communicating with
1: absolutely and it's one thing as a profession I think we're coming on leaps and bounds our communication with clients our communication with students and just that availability to have someone to check in with and say this is what I've been doing, can you just have a look at it for me? I've always said to all students, all coaches, all training practices I've ever looked after, I'm at the end of an email, if you need me, don't struggle in silence. This is is my job. This is what I'm here to do. I'm here to look after you and make sure that you're going to progress through your programme so that we can get you through to qualification. And yes, it might mean lots of emails, but if those students go away with the answer they need, then I've done a good job.
0: Absolutely. I guess they need just support, don't they?
1: Yeah. It can be yeah.
0: quite daunting and stressful.
1: Well, I felt it could be. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think regardless, again, of which route you took, whether it was diploma or degree, what university it was at, what college it was at, whether it was CQ or City and Guilds, it is stressful. It's a professional registered and recognised qualification. So in order to come out with those RVN post-nominals at the end... It takes a real commitment for you to be able to achieve that. And, of course, there's going to be a level of stress. And unfortunately, therefore, that comes with anxiety. Um, the The academic requirements, the practical requirements, the dreaded OSCEs at the end, um, they're all things that all students have to go through. And we, as RVNs, remember what it was like. So, again, having that compassion and that empathy, I think that comes across and again to tie this into what I was talking about earlier if that's who you are you're the right person for the job because if you want to help a student whether it's your student or your friend's student or a student that you just met for 45 minutes in a training practice for the first time if you want to take that on and help them on their journey then it's something that you should be looking into
0: yeah and you say about how you know, how much of a challenge it is to get those Mm post-nominals and get yourself on the register, but also exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, How, how do you feel your role and your passion sort of helps steer the students into evidence-based practice and wanting to strive the profession forward?
1: I think, uh, honestly, I think the key word there is passion. We as a team and as an industry in general are becoming so aware of the importance of promoting evidence-based nursing it's not developing evidence-based nursing it's always been there it's just promoting how that impacts what we do on a day-to-day basis and encouraging the students to recognize the importance of it it was incorporated into the this latest update of the NPR for example um, I know um, from a college animal welfare perspective, and I can't speak for all colleges, but I know that it's really pushed and promoted by the lecturing team because it could be that a practice is doing something in a specific way because they do it in that specific way and there's no rhyme or reason to why they're doing it. And all it takes is for one person, student, RVN, vet, receptionist, to say, why do you do it like that? To question that process and actually review what you're doing and make sure that you are doing it to the correct clinical standards based on the most up-to-date research so again it's it's just it's promoting that that passion that interest ensuring that students aren't accepting of this because that's just how we do it and encouraging them to always question why
0: and in terms of i know obviously you subconsciously try and Develop the students into asking the questions why, why do we do this and how can we make it better and so on. Where do you see the profession moving as a whole? Oh, that's a uh, very big question. It's a very broad yeah. question. Um,
1: I am um, incredibly excited about where the profession's going. I think there are some new qualifications on the horizon. VetSkill has just launched last month. Um, Amazing, yeah. Sitting guilds is due to be re-accredited in the coming months and has made some some big changes to its program which have again been on the horizon for a few years now the degree programs are all slowly making changes in this recognition of this again is it's the evidence-based it's the progression of the industry it's making sure that we're always striving to be the best at what we can possibly be and that I think is it's just really exciting That development of us as RVNs, as well as all of the postgraduate qualifications that are available, it's not limited to people that have degrees anymore. It's not limited to an advanced diploma. It's not limited to the grad dip. There are things on the horizon that people that have no further qualifications can look into and almost look to be specialising themselves as registered veterinary nurses with an interest in oncology for example and promoting that as their little niche area it's you know with the, the way the profession is at the moment having these people that are really passionate and committed to promoting their area of practice is going to develop naturally a well-rounded team of professionals who hopefully will stay in that practice and ensure better retention in the future.
2: Indeed and I guess leading on from that where do you see training like student training going where do you how do you see that progressing where would you like to see that improve i what areas
1: i think there may be some changes in relation to like i said it, the specific qualifications so at the moment um there's City Guilds or CQ but we've just had Vetskill join the party as it were you know, Realistically, since the RCVS awards ceased the better part of 10 years ago now, the qualification, the diploma level three diploma qualification as it stands, hasn't changed hugely. Right now, where we are standing in 2019, there are options. There is variety available. Mm. Equine nursing through the diploma route is becoming more feasible for more students across the country. And that's something from a diploma point of view that hasn't necessarily been as accessible as it might be right now. So you've got specialism in terms of your small animal requirements or your equine requirements. You've got different course options for you as a student to look at and think, this is what's right for me and this is why. And again, from day one, you're encouraging that student to look at who they are as a person and how they can achieve that qualification in the best way for them. In terms of the degree programmes, there are changes coming, the you know the development of the, the long case scenarios as opposed to the end-stage OSCE assessment as it currently stands. It's something um, anyone that's ever heard me talk about this in the past will know that I'm really passionate about (laughs) those potential changes in the future. Um, The evidence isn't there yet to make those changes. We know that the OSCEs, as they stand, work in terms of that endpoint assessment and ensuring those students are eligible for registration. It's a tried and tested method, but we wouldn't be doing our jobs as registered veterinary nurses and promoting evidence-based nursing if we didn't question whether that was still the right method in 2019, as it was all those years ago when it was first incorporated. So thinking, yes, it works, but could we come up with a way that it works better better and producing the evidence to support that claim? That's something that's in the works right now. There are universities out there promoting it trying to put that forward and hopefully producing the evidence to make those changes in the not too distant future rome wasn't built in a day day, yeah but (laughs) it's it's coming you know these changes are coming it's yeah it's really excited
0: just can you just explain a little bit more about the long-based questions
1: oh yeah um, for those for for those those that are listening and and aren't sure what that means i'm I'm sure you will remember your oskies um and they're often fondly referred to as the dreaded Oski So you have your your basic um, ten or twelve stage Oski station, usually a twelve stage Oski station, six minute task, um, and you're assessed against you know a simulation, and you've got your set your steps for your criteria of how to safely and effectively complete that skill, which is fine. It's essentially I always think of it as a snapshot of something that you might be expected to do in practice. My thoughts on the Oski are that they are. Good in what they are assessing, but when, as a veterinary nurse, have you been asked to just tube feed a patient? Just do one thing yes. one, but yes. you have no other involvement or requirement to do anything with that patient at yeah. all yeah, in reality, the process would be more along the lines of you check that patient first thing in the morning and you do the clinical exam, you might groom them, you might clean out their kennel. And then, when you're happy with their medication situation, you've checked with the vet at that point, you might go ahead and give that tube feed it's a It's a nursing process yeah and indeed. again the nursing process as a whole is something that we are you know reviewing and ensuring is the most up to date way that we should be doing it right now. That needs to be incorporated into that assessment of our students. Can they look at a situation in front of them and act appropriately, safely and effectively? nursing the patient and the situation that they are presented with ultimately that's the end goal of the the long stage scenario-based assessments
2: I think it sounds really interesting and I think I'd love to see it develop and love to try it and <laughs> um, try it, setting, it out keep, yeah. keep watching yeah <laughs> you know
1: it's it is coming and it's there are I know that there are universities right now trialing this and have already incorporated it into their programs so that although they are ensuring they're meeting the RCVS criteria for the endpoint assessment with the 12 stage OSCE they are incorporating these scenario based assessments throughout the program in order to produce the evidence for future um, RCVS meetings
0: and obviously you've been training clinical coaches um for the last couple of years Mm -hmm. um, and helping sort of assess the NPL and so on, what would be your top tip for a clinical coach or your advice for a clinical coach in terms of, you know, motivating students and really empowering students to move the profession forward?
1: Okay, Um, my number one top tip, and this is going to sound so basic, you're probably going to look like I've lost my head, (laughs) Um, get to know your students. I think the relationship between a student and a clinical coach is absolutely critical in order to allow that student to succeed, as well as ensuring the clinical coach hasn't gone completely grey by the end of their (laughs) two-year diploma programme or the 10-week placement block, whatever it is. Um, I often recommend to clinical coaches when I'm training them, particularly new coaches for the first time, sit down with their student and do a learning styles questionnaire, something like VARC. It's free online online and you can do a, a really quick questionnaire. How does your student learn? And also, how do you learn? How do you then incorporate that into what it is that you need to pass on to your student? And are you doing that in such a way that they can hear it? There's no point in you persistently talking to your student and telling them how to be doing something if they're a very visual learner and actually they need you to be showing you or they need to be physically doing it themselves because they're a kinesthetic learner. So sit down, have that initial tutorial based around their learning styles. Once you've got that understanding of who your student is, you need to be thinking about something along the lines of a coaching contract. So developing that awareness from them of what they expect from you, and in return, what do you expect from them? Have that set in stone, have that as your agreement. Have a pre-arranged deal, if you like. You can contact me between nine and six, but no other times because that's my time and I need to get away from practice or I need to not be thinking about your MPL. I think most people would say that's fair enough, specifically for those coaches that aren't paid any additional for being a clinical coach. Mm. Um, so set, set the boundaries. Is it okay for them to email you on a Saturday night? For some coaches, it might not be an issue. For other coaches that's definitely not going to be okay, set the boundaries, make sure they're aware of what is okay, what is not okay, and from that develop that, right, I will give you my time, I will give you my support, my knowledge, my expertise, I will not be critical of you, I will not um, judge you, I won't laugh at you, I will support you and I will encourage you to be the best vet nurse that you can be, in return I expect you to be punctual, I expect you to dress appropriately for work. I expect you to communicate in a professional manner. All things that might seem second nature to us as RVNs because we've been in practice for a number of years. But when you're brand new, think back to day one in practice and how scary and overwhelming that was. And if you'd have had someone sit down and say to you, I will give you this if in return you give me that. This is what I expect of you. It's mutual respect,
0: isn't it? It's yeah, absolutely. A partnership. Yeah
1: then I think you're going to be probably on a fairly sound footing to move forward. And you also, if you do go down the route of something like an official coaching contract, you're you're setting that up as an official agreement. So if your student ends up being persistently late, or you have an issue with their appearance in practice, or you have overheard them using bad language, particularly in front of clients, you can refer them back to that initial discussion, you agreed that you would comply with these criteria. And at the moment, you're not. So until you can comply with these criteria, I'm not going to commit any time to your NPL, or I'm not going to, you know, allow you to shadow me when I'm doing anaesthetics for the next two weeks until we've reviewed your professional behaviour. You know, there has to be that accountability, which we as nurses might be quite new to, yeah. but they, the students that are coming through now, they need to understand that from day one of qualification and joining the register, they are professionally accountable. And once they're registered and qualified, they need to be able to stand on their own two feet. That's something that a coach needs to help them develop. You can't teach someone that. It's not something you can say, this is how you do it. But it needs to be, let me guide you, I'll show you, because I will do this for you if you do this for me. And I guess it's that sort of
0: scary moment where overnight you wear dark green and you're out of stripes and it's literally people are asking you to double check the yeah. methadone and yeah. so, so it's on. from day so one
2: having that accountability. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah
0: practicing that
2: throughout your whole training yeah so it's not just a sudden sort of shock overnight yeah and I think it's difficult for some clinical coaches um I think some people are often thrown into the clinical coach role or their practice is expecting that of them whether or not they've wanted to do it or whether they feel ready to do it and I think it's quite challenging for those clinical coaches um
1: yeah I always ask when I'm training new clinical coaches, I always ask show of hands who who requested to be here and who was requested to be here. And from my perspective, because I, I enjoy it and I love doing it, it is a bit disheartening when people are a bit like, oh, I was made to come because the current clinical coach is going on return to leave or they're leaving or, you know, we're just taking on a student for the first time and no one else would do it. So I said I'd come along. My goal with someone in that situation, by the time they're leaving my training is to have them passionate and engaged with vet nurse training. And on the whole, I think I've not done a bad job. I think I've generally lit a bit of a fire within most people. That's good. (laughs) Um, And and that is my job, so yes, that is good. Um, And I think that comes from my passion. So if, if you are in a situation where you've been thrown into it or it's not necessarily where you anticipated going with your own career, Or even, and I had this recently at our Clinical Coach Congress in March, you might already be a clinical coach and you might have fallen out of love with it. You might have had a difficult student. You might have had a student that failed for whatever reason. and There are myriad reasons why that might have happened. You might have just found that the opposite. Your students were so easy and they were so good and they just got on with it. It was boring for you. Because again, the same with students, we're all different. There's going to be various reasons why you're not feeling the love for vet nurse training anymore, go and do some CPD. Go and find Mm. out what is out there that you can get your teeth into. Become the person in your practice that's responsible for something, for example. Um, And then be that go-to person and be that person that your student looks up to and says, when I grow up, I want to be just like Betsy because (laughs) she's brilliant (laughs) with her anaesthetics, for example. Mm. You know, that's what you want. And again, it's... Thinking about role models and empowerment and all of the things that we talked about at Congress last month, these things are all coming through in the industry right now. I'd hate to think that coaches are out there in practice thinking, God, I hate being a clinical coach. This isn't what I want to do anymore. I just want to get through the day. I'll tick off my student. I'll do the bare minimum of what I can get away with because that student will learn that behaviour. And that's who they will become as a registered veterinary nurse. And that's not what we want in our industry.
2: So... I'm going to ask a question that I know a lot of um nurses have have asked um or are afraid to ask. Do you how do you feel about nurses that feel that they should be paid more to be a clinical coach? Like in your opinion, do you feel that it's something that just comes with the role part or the role do you feel all. that actually they should be they should have an increase in their salary it.
1: because it is hard work. Or... I think any clinical coach who is not being paid extra for clinical coaching needs to be having very quick words with their boss um, because it's it's not an accepted status. We don't qualify as RVNs and clinical coaches. We qualify as RVNs All vets. You know, vets are equally good clinical coaches. You, so we are either... MRCVS or RVN at the end of our training programme. And then you require further training to become a clinical coach. And you have to commit time to training that student. And if you are going to do the absolute best job that you can do, and you take the time to find the VARC learning style questionnaire and you print off a coaching contract for you and your student, that shouldn't be on your time, that should be on your coaching time. And again, to draw links to the Clinical Coach Congress that we held in March, Alison Lambert from OnSwitch Training spoke about this at length. And she quite rightly said that there should be, within the profit and loss sheet, there should be a, a, a budget for clinical coach training. And that shouldn't be borrowed from somewhere else. That shouldn't be, oh, well, that's your CPD allowance and that's your lot, that's all you get it should be recognition of what you are giving that practice because at the end of the day, what you're giving your practice is another RVN. And the way that RVNs are in short supply at the moment, you know, what kind of price is your practice prepared to put on that? So, absolutely. interesting. I guess you're
0: creating the future of the profession as well. Yeah. Um So it's really important they require to require you.
2: To see that student through their training. So, yeah, it's interesting
1: (laughs) I yeah I think if we're going to be promoting passionate people into those clinical coaching roles and we want them to be helping us in the colleges and the universities to produce the vet nurses of the future I think it goes without saying that they should be paid more and I think it's a bit of a travesty if I'm totally honest that they aren't currently However, there are more and more practices that are paying clinical coaches and as an industry there may be some aspects in which we are slow to change but hopefully this one will light a fire somewhere along the line and more practices will recognise it as the norm and not the abnormal.
0: So you've given us sort of advice and recommendation for clinical coaches, what would be your recommendation for somebody that wants to go into you know, move out of practice and go into a role like yours?
1: Um My first bit of advice would be go and, go and do a work shadow day. Um You know, on the one hand, I can sit here and say, I always knew that I wanted to go into teaching and training, which I absolutely did. But as I said earlier, I didn't even know that the job that I now do existed. And you might think I want to be a lecturer or I want to be an IQA or I want to be um, a clinical skills practitioner, whatever it is. Think until you have a good understanding of what that role is going to ask of you. Perhaps think twice about committing to it because it's it's not everything that you think it is in terms of you look at a lecturing role and you think, great, it's a Monday to Friday, nine to five, and I'm going to be teaching the students and I'm really passionate and am committed. There is a lot more to it. As I, and I think most vet nurses are probably quite open-minded about that because we know that as vet nurses, we are not just vet nurses. And in the same way, lecturers are not just lecturers and IQAs are not just IQAs. You know, there is so many different tie-ins across the whole of our profession. So go and have a think about what it is that you want from your passion, your commitment. It doesn't need to be lecturing or IQA. It could be nutrition could be your thing. And you might look into doing a work shadow day with a nutrition company and have a chat with someone who does a role that you didn't even know existed until you had that conversation. So get out there, find out what's going on outside of your practices if that's what you're looking for. I'm not promoting vet nurses leaving practices, but there are some people who have a very specific desire, like I did, to go and do something different with their qualification. So I had a look around. I had to think about what I really wanted and I went out and I did it. So have a look, have a think about what you want from your career, your working day, your passion, your drive. Go and do a work shadow day. You'll be hard pushed to find a college that won't have you on board for a work shadow day. Because again, in the same way that we want more passionate, committed vet nurses, we want more passionate, committed IQAs and lecturers (laughs) in order to train those people. So you know, the, the jobs are out there, it might not be when you're wanting it to be, it might take a little while for you to get to that point, but make yourself aware, you know, get on the on the horizon of the college that you think this is who I want to go and work for, do a work shadow day. apply for a job, get in contact with them, do they specifically require any qualifications previous to you applying? They will tell you, if they do, they will tell you, And then you can spend your time working towards that goal. Hopefully that will help prevent you, whilst you're waiting for that role to come up, feeling underutilised or unempowered or even burnt out because you know that you're working towards that goal that is something slightly different to what the other people in your practice are working towards. It might not be the best fit for you in practice. Go and find the thing that's the best fit for you. Work towards that. Go and get some experience doing other things. Great, thank you. Um,
2: I think just to round up, can we talk
1: about what's next for Shirley? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um I have a very exciting few weeks coming up because I actually leave the College animal Welfare on Friday in three days' time. Oh wow. Um and much as I will be sad to leave the, the college, of course I will. I have some great friends there. They they took me from my rotating vet nurse role in a referral practice and made me now the lead IQA, you know, I've I've loved what I've done with the college and I've seen so many students come through and I still get emotional when I think about the students that I've taken from or helped to take from day one, no experience through to in their greens registered veterinary nurse. So I'm taking my own advice, I'm taking that passion, that drive and I'm taking the next step into the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons uh, where I will be starting in the coming weeks as their vet nursing qualifications manager. So i will be overseeing degree programmes across the UK, um, ultimately ensuring that they are um, fit for their kind of licence to practice accreditation um, and hopefully, fingers crossed, um, driving those degree programmes forward in the future, ensuring, obviously, that the RCVS requirements are still met and the day one skills and competencies are covered and the learning outcomes, but ensuring that we... we The Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons are promoting vet nurse training, again, to be the best vet nurses that we can help to produce. And if that means helping to promote some changes in the training process, I'm all for that. Which is where it starts. (laughs) Absolutely.
2: (laughs) Um, great I think it's great that they're going to have you on boards I think you're going to be an asset to them I guess you're really passionate so (laughs) onwards and upwards I upwards.
1: I think um I I have a genuine excitement about where the vet nursing industry is going I think I've been a bit disheartened over the last couple of years with the worry about can we recruit enough nurses can we retain enough nurses why can't we get them back after maternity leave all of these things um and if that's been your thought process as well I'd recommend you go and have a look online at the Vet Nursing Futures project it's you know two and a half years into the project at this point in time and there are again hopefully some really exciting things to come out of that it's something that all nurses can get involved in even if leadership management isn't your thing teaching isn't your thing you might have a slightly different qualification process to everybody else you might do a really niche role in your practice and you want to talk about it, get on your soapbox, do it. You know, we need more voices in the industry that are shouting about how great we are as registered veterinary nurses. Indeed. Because without us there is no veterinary industry. It's not just the vets or just the nurses or just the receptionists. It's the whole practice team collectively and you know, together we can make something incredible, continue to make this incredible profession drive forward for the future of the UK and the pet industry in the UK. So yeah, yeah I am passionate as you can tell, and <laughs> yes. excited. It's um, it is so
2: exciting just to see what is gonna happen and yeah. where the profession is is going. Um, I'm with you on that one. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. so thank you so much for coming to speak to us today. Is there it means by which people can contact you if they have any questions.
1: Yeah, so I would suggest probably LinkedIn as your best bet. Um, so it's just Shirley Gibbons, fairly easy to find. Not many Shirley's around, so I okay. <laughs> should not struggled too much with that one. Um, yeah, feel free to get in touch. Um, I hope I've answered all of your questions comprehensively, but by all means, if anyone is unsure or worried or feels like I haven't quite touched on an area that they specifically wanted to hear about, get in touch I'm more than happy to answer your questions because one more person getting in touch is one more nurse with that fire and passion that wants to do something a little bit different get out there get into these different profession professional avenues and promoting the vet nursing training and development for the future
2: Indeed. Equally, get in touch with us um, on our email at info at uk, and we could also forward on any questions to Shirley Absolutely. and get back to you with a response. So good. And good luck with your new role, Shirley. Thank, Thank you, you very you. much,